For our scripture reading this morning, let us turn to Amos chapter 3, begin reading at verse 9 through verse 15. Amos 3, verse 9. Beginning to read then with verse 9, hear now the word of the Lord. Proclaim in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble on the mountains of Samaria. See great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her, for they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you and your palaces shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria, in the corner of the bed and on the edge of the couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day I punish Israel for their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall have an end says the Lord may God's blessings be upon this 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 revelation of thy spirit O Lord through the prophet Amos the title of the message this morning is Real Live Punishment. The Lord in this chapter of Amos, he focuses upon the punishment that will come. And this, this is the, one of the focuses on, on throughout many of the chapters. Now, Amos is not a long book, but this is the focus of much of it. He's already spoken of how um, he, the, the Spirit of the Lord had fallen upon him, and that though he was the least of the least, just a... Uh, uh, a shepherd from Tekoa, that the Lord had laid this burden on him to preach to the people of Israel. And you remember how it started out, this book, where it started out prophesying against the various secular kingdoms around Israel. But then the point of it was to go from them to Israel itself, because, yes, God will judge the wicked in, the, in terms of those outside the covenant, but he will also judge those within the covenant community. The various churches that we, of which we see, those, those churches, those groups of people that take the Lord's name, the Lord will judge them. And that's a kind of a strange thing. We think, well, God, why would you judge your own people? Why, why is it not enough just to be ethnically uh, Israeli in this day? And uh, we could say today, outwardly Christian. Why is that not enough? Why why would you speak of judging uh, thy people? And the point is that God wants more out of us than mere outward observance. Uh, God wants our hearts. The Lord will not stop his reach for us and his providences with us and for us. God will not stop his reach or his working for us until he has our hearts that are responsive to him. We can think of this ourselves because we know each one of us is living 
as a, a believer in this day, and we we have a greater sense of our own heart than any anyone else. We can be we can be upset with other people and angry with them, but when we in our anger and in our upset, we never really know uh, what's going on in that heart of ours, and that should temper us, and that should restrain our judgmental capacities with other people. But our own hearts, we know them all too well. And, um, and we suffer with that knowledge because we know that despite all that we give to God, that we are just not where we could be and where we should be. And so it's a burden to us. Well, that's God's desires, and that's that was God's desire for old Israel here. Now, how do I get to this idea of focusing upon the punishment? Well, um, the Lord... <laughs> As he, as he mentions this, he mentions it in a, pecul- a peculiar way or a, a particular way that draws our attention to this issue. You see, he starts in verse, verse 9, proclaim. And uh, then uh, he, he says in verse 11, thus says the Lord God. Verse 12, thus says the Lord. Verse 13b, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts. As God talks about this punishment, he's not just talking about it as a factual, in, in the factual dimension. In other words, these, these are things you ought to think about. These are the things that you ought to consider. No, he's talking about them as, as if they are earth-shaking. He's talking about them as if by thinking about these things and meditating upon them and coming to grips with them, that it will drive us like so many... Uh, Wild steers by uh, 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 a cowboy shepherd in the field, he'll drive us into the corral of the Lord. And so <clears throat> he starts out, um, well, I, I say here in the notes, uh, in the bulletin, that um, one of the worst elements of human life and society is that consciously people refuse to admit that real, live, Divine punishment threatens them. It, it hangs over us. We have the final judgment to go through. But even in this world, even in this life, we have God threatens us with these judgments. And so he threatens Israel in this text. Uh, it was no different in, in Amos day. And in this text, he sets out to change the status quo. Divine punishment must be. And I've got these three things proclaimed not merely discussed, understood, not just secretly dreaded, expected as a real specter of God's wrath. So this we, we face, first of all, this idea of proclamation. And he says to the, he, he, he clothes his prophecy in these words, uh, proclaim in the palaces of, um, of, uh, of Ashdod. And immediately before this text, he talked about the, the wild lion and, uh, and how it, it can roar, and what, what that means. And so in verse 8, he says, A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The, the, the Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? He's speaking about himself. The burden of the Lord is upon him. And remember, his name, Amos, means burden. And he's burdened with this, this overwhelming sense that, that, that God has a contention against his people and that they need to wake up. And so right away, he talks about proclaiming these things. Now, first of all, in verse 9, he, he, he starts with Ashdod in Egypt. He says, proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod and in the palaces of the land of Egypt and say, uh, 
assemble on the mountains of Samaria. Uh, see the great tum tumults in her midst and the oppressed with her, for they do not know how to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. So here we are. He's taking a picture of Israel. But he starts with the pagan, two pagan nations around them, uh, Ashdod, which is a uh, one of the major cities of Philistia, Philistia, one of the major Philistine cities, and he focuses on Egypt. Just like he started the prophecy by prophesying against these places, so he picks out two of them, and he says, uh, proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod. But the point is that you proclaim in those and their foreign palaces what you're going to do in Israel. And so the most sober dimension of this applies to his people. You could say the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, uh, the Lord uh, the Lord does not want us to merely talk about these things in a, a preachy, a moralizing way. That's not the way he uses the term proclaim. A proclamation is something that's really important. A proclamation of war. A proclamation of peace. God wants this theme of judgment not to be talked about in some academic way, but he wants it to be proclaimed, to be preached in a kind of largely, significantly public way. Proclaim this in the land of Israel. Why was this? Well, it was because the people of Israel had become nonchalant, about God's existence, unimpressed by his word. They would go through the paces. They would go through the steps of acting like God's people. But where were their hearts? Their hearts were far from God. And so because of this situation, he says to Amos, go and proclaim this from the rooftops. Make this a national proclamation. Now, uh, Amos was not a favorite in this enterprise. He was a foreigner. He was a foreigner in a sense. You can read in the, the book of Samuel and the kings early on that <clears throat> how the nation had um, divided along tribal lines. Uh, Judah was the, the main tribe of rule in the south. Benjamin was allied, allied with her in a uh, more uh, intimate way. But the ten tribes of the north uh, just owing to their uh, jealousy, to the fact that they were not, that none of them were uh, selected out to be the main tribe that would uh, be the strength of Israel. There were jealousies that began. And you can see, I remember reading about this when I was studying the prophets, and uh, one of the old, old teachers brought this to my attention, that there was this before the civil war in Israel, before they divided that there was this jealousy, that there was this covetous, covetousness uh, of the northern tribes against the southern tribes. And so that ultimately, that, 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 that covetousness, that, that, that jealousy was not dealt with. And ultimately, it flowered in a rather ugly way. And so uh, uh, Amos, though, can't, comes from Judah to do this. And so uh, this would be like a... a a prophet from Indiana coming across the state lines and bringing special condemnation to Ohio. And we think, you know, doesn't he, isn't, doesn't he know about the Ohio State? The Buckeye? How, how, how significant we are over here in Ohio? That's what, the, that's what people, prophets like Amos faced. They were outsiders. 
um, this came to me with a special poignancy when I was doing, starting to do street ministry in Lynchburg, Virginia, and I saw how the city reacted, not so much to me, but to some others that had preceded me. And it, it brought home the fact that Jesus' whole life, that every place that he went to, he was, uh, he was uh, understood to be or seen as an outsider and as a troublemaker, in a sense, because he was not one of them. Uh, we, as human beings, we get so much, we get so much security and such a sense of, of, um, of uh, significance from the fact that we're in our own clan or within our, we were the, within our own group of people that has a common understanding. Uh, the way God created us, he created us both individuals and then to be covenant people. And the whole idea of covenant is group. So that we have within us, that, that's why there are Republicans and Democrats. That, that's why there are different groups of people. We, it's like magnets aligning. We have this tendency not only to be individuals and to think individually, but we also have this tendency and this desire to link up with uh, the other uh, poles of the magnet. And it's an instinctive kind of a thing. And so Amos, in the sense, was had a difficult time. He was hated, and most of the prophets were hated. And it says in the New Testament, when they, when they survey, in the Gospel of Matthew, when they survey the prophets, Jesus remarks about how, how ill was their welcome by the main, main people of, uh, of these communities that they were in. And so... <clears throat> Uh, Amos calls these people, the, the foreigners, to assemble on the mountains of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Samaria. And uh, he's not speaking here so much about the city of Samaria, although that's where Samaria was on a, a mountain um, there in northern Israel. But in this case, Samaria stands for the northern ten tribes because Samaria was where the capital was at that time, or, or the, the center of political power at that time. And so he calls these foreigners from Ashdod and Egypt to, to assemble in the mountains of Samaria and to look and to see what they, what they would see. And what he says are there are great tumults in her midst, in the midst of Samaria. And, uh, and uh, there, were, there was much oppression, for they do not know to do right, says the Lord who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Now, do you think the people of Samaria understood this? They, they did not, or there would have been no need for Amos. Uh, we as human beings have this tendency, this capacity to be oppressive to each other. If we ask today, why, why, does, why are there so many condemnable actions taken by the government. Why are they trying to get us to stop using gas stoves? I mean, these are crazy things. Why, why do they care what kind of cars we drive, whether EVs, electric vehicles, or gas vehicles? You know, well, why would the government make this a priority for themselves? It just, it's on the verge of lunacy. I mean, you could see it if, the, if these cars exploded or something, these gas-powered cars, if they would incinerate themselves and kill everyone that was in them, then we'd say, well, I can see the justification for this. But that's not what governments do. And, and that was the same way. They didn't have gas vehicles in, in, in this day in Samaria. They didn't have gas stoves. 
Um, they, they were their, their lives were far more simple than that. They had not made these discoveries yet of how to how to uh, control uh, 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 gas in pipes and and uh, or uh, the gasoline in an internal combustion engine. These things were yet to be discovered centuries later. But it was the same issue because the, the governments that were there, the people that were there, they still were operating on this kind of malignant wavelength of wanting to control each other, of wanting to take advantage of each other, of wanting to tax you but not me, in, in the sense of I was the, the governing party of the day. Uh, why, why is it that people think that as long as they can get 51% of the people to agree with them, they don't mind taking advantage of each other and taking advantage of the poor or those who are in the 49%. But this is, this is the way it was. Now, the Lord saw his people and he knew that if they really worshipped him, if they had his value system in their minds, this would not be the case. You know, the Ten Commandments, they, when they teach, thou shalt not steal, the Westminster Confession teaches, the Shorter Catechism teaches, when it says don't steal or don't covet, it means that you're supposed to wish for the best for your neighbor. You're not supposed to see how much you can take advantage of him. You're not supposed to see whether how, how, how you, if you can get a, enough of a party together yourself, how then you can tax him uh, for uh, your college loans, even though you are they, they are poorer than you. You, you want to take advantage of them. You see, these things are still going on. They are part and parcel of the human being. But it all goes back to our spiritual values and to our love of God. That's why I, I get so frustrated with modern conservatism. I, I'm a modern conservative in many ways, but I get so, uh, I get so frustrated with them because they, they will not trace these things back to the Lord. Every fundraising letter I get, they're, they're talking about how I should be upset with this, upset with that, but because of the horrible Democrats. But those are the kinds of letters that I get. But uh, they don't really focus on the fact that, uh, <clears throat> that, uh, that all of this originates with God. They, they, they say, we need to be change, make changes, big changes. I got, I got one this past week. It's talking about the, the school system. It's how... There's an organization that's been raised up that deals with uh, school boards and how to get better school boards. But in the, I, I looked in this letter to see, well, where do they find the locus or the core of the problem? And they definitely did not see it in terms of the spiritual dimensions of the societies about which they preached. Things are bad today uh, because of the lack of faith. And I, I just love verse chapter 3. If there is a calamity in the city, in a city, will not the Lord have done it? People are just not aware of these things. They, they, are, they refuse to recognize them. And so uh, Amos, Amos is called to proclaim these things. And we see here in verse 9, then verse 11, verse 12, and verse 13, uh, each one, each, each verse, or each segment of this passage has something to do with the proclamation. It says to proclaim these things, first of all, in verse 9, but then in verse 11, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God. This is not, this is not like, therefore, thus says Dick Canodal. You know, Dick Canodal can speak, and you know, basically people need not pay attention. The, the, the momentum, the significance, the weight 
of my voice, it's like nothing. But God says, but God is the one who's speaking here. And therefore he calls attention to this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Verse 12, thus says the Lord. Verse 13b, thus uh, says the Lord, <coughs> the Lord God, the God of hosts. And so uh, God wants Amos to proclaim that there is a real life punishment that is coming and that the people should live their lives as if this were true. Now, he explains more in, uh, in verse 10 and following about why this should be understood. It shouldn't just be dreaded. You know, we have this ironical dimension of the knowledge of God in each of our hearts. On one hand, the Bible says that, that men do not know that the Lord is God. When it says that, they, what, it, what it means is that they do not live their lives as if he really existed. But then in Romans 1, it says deep within their hearts, they do know that God is the Lord. Even it says unto his uh, invisible attributes. But this, this knowledge of God also needs a little bit of definition because we can know something and yet we can, it can, we can leave it latent in our, in our minds and our hearts as if it is not really significant. And people, uh, the people have a dread for the Lord in their hearts, but it has not controlled them. It has not changed the way they live in almost any way. And so... Uh, when I'm watching a movie, I'll often wait for Jesus' name to be mentioned because uh, Jesus' name is almost always mentioned at the high points of a meeting, a me uh, of, a, uh, of a story, when the crisis is reached because people are upset and they try to give some expression of this uh, 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 upset. And uh, so they'll, they'll, they'll clothe their expletive Whatever it is, their outrage, their, their complaint, they'll clothe it. They try to magnify it by adding a power word to it. And there's no more powerful word in the English language than the name of the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, they don't use it in a holy way or an adoring way, but they use it only as a power word to draw attention to their complaint or to what, they, what they're doing. So when you, when you watch TV stories, or movies. So take this into mind. What, what you ask yourself: Why in the world? This is not somebody that goes to church. Why? This is not somebody that is lifting up or magnifying the knowledge of God. Why in the world then would they employ this in basically extraneous, specious word? They don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. Why? Why would they use this this name at this point in the script? And it's because in their hearts they know that it is a powerful name. In their hearts they know that there is significance there. And they use it in a way, in a sense, to try to minimize the, the threat uh, that they feel. R.C. Sproul, when he talks about this in uh, some of his books, he talks about it in terms of um, Whistling past the graveyard. You know, you're, you're walking past the graveyard. You're a little superstitious. You're worried about the spirits in the graveyard maybe coming to get it, get you. And so as you go by, you whistle. And you, you pretend that you don't, you're not really bothered at all by the, by the threats that you feel or the possible spirits that are associated with the graveyard. 
So you whistle and you and you, you, um, you act opposite to what you really feel. And that's the way people uh, act with the name of the Lord. Uh, the same thing with some of his attributes, like the word, the, the attribute of holiness. Uh, if you use the word holy as an adjective uh, for cows and things like that, don't do it because uh, the, 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 any attribute that God has is a wonderful and a, and a, a privileged, uh, a precious thing. And we shouldn't minimize these things by using them casually in our conversation. But that's what people do. Why? Because they have a, a very deep, latent fear that God does exist. They're afraid of God's judgment. And so they behave in these kind of neurotic ways when it comes to spiritual things. They don't even understand what they're doing. But they behave that way because it's the way they feel. Well, God wants, God wants us to know him, but not in this kind of hidden, neurotic way where, it, where our knowledge comes out like, like hiccups or like ticks, nervous ticks. God wants us to know him and love him. And when we say his name, to say it in a, a worshipful name, a worshipful way. But is this, is this the way the societies deal with the Lord? No. And so because of that, he says to Amos, come and proclaim these things. Proclaim that there is a judgment. Proclaim that there is a punishment. And, uh, um, and uh, so we, we, we proclaim that he tells Amos to proclaim these things. He wants people to understand the depth of them. He says in verse 11, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you and your palaces shall be, shall be plundered says the Lord. And then in verse after verse 12, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, is God that graphic here? <laughs> you know, you come upon a lion who has just uh, devastated some smaller animal, has killed him and, and eaten him, and now he lays on the ground satisfied. He's not as much of a threat now, and the shepherd comes and he pulls a leg out of the, out of the lion's mouth or I like the part of an ear. Pulls it out. What this means that the animal has already devoured this smaller animal, whatever he is. And so he says, God compares this to Israel. He says, so shall the children of Israel be taken out. There was taken out of the guts or the mouth or the fangs of, of uh, Assyria, and Philistia, Egypt. So shall the, the people of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob. Now we've just finished a sermon series on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you have some sense of the dearness with which God held the patriarchal families. But here we see that he's testifying against the house of Jacob because he says, in that day I will punish Israel for their transgression I will also visit destruction upon the, uh, the altars of Bethel. Now you notice what he focuses upon here. These are the most precious religious parts of their worship. The altars of Bethel, the horns of the altar. The horns of the altar were these, these horns of, of, uh, of uh, uh, metal that would stick out from the corners of the altar by which they would tie the, the beast to be sacrificed down upon the altar before it was slain. 
And, uh, and it was also recognized that it was a place for prayer, that as the priests would, would grab a hold of the horns of the altar, they would pray to their God to help them to bless Israel. But here in this case, the, the, the Bethel, which was one of the oldest places that Jacob frequented, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob frequented to worship, and then the horns of the altar that was a part of the tabernacle, um, it, it says here that these things would, um, uh, would be cut off and fall to the ground. He said, I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. Uh, modern America is not the only country that has, that where there's enough wealth that people can afford summer houses or winter houses, depending on where they live and what they want to have. Israel was very prosperous in many ways, but God says he's going to put all of that to an end. Even the houses of ivory shall perish. In other words, the rich people's houses and the great houses uh, that would have an end. And so we come to this last point, which is that, uh, that the people needed to expect and that they needed to have in their minds the real specter, the real specter of God's wrath. A specter is like a vision, a fearful vision that we would have in our minds is something that awful that's going to come upon us. And sometimes people will have dreams where they, they see a specter of judgment or a specter of calamity that will fall upon them. Well, God wants us. He, by the way, he gives this prophecy to Amos. He's cultivating this. He wants Amos to paint this picture of, uh, of the, the, the judgment and the punishment which is to come uh, because there's no substitute for righteousness. Righteousness must prevail upon the earth. This is God's earth. He created it. Will he allow this festering corpuscle of malignancy, this, this toxic corruption, will he allow that to go on forever? No. In the day of the Lord, all things will be righteous. God will correct all this, and anything that is not righteous will be done away with. And so we live in the, an ex- expectation of that, and we must get control of our lives. And our lives are not controlled by just simply the behavior that, that is exhibited in our lives. But that behavior that is exhibited comes from somewhere. It comes from a source. What is the source of our behavior? If it is not the love of God, then we're undone. If it is not the pure, unadulterated love of God, we are finished. The Bible says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart and all of thy soul and all of thy mind. The Lord does not come to us with outward commandments as the core issue. He comes to us with his love, the demand for our love. He is the most wondrous being, the divine being. He is the most worthy of love. So if we are sentient, knowledgeable creatures, would we not respond responsibly, responsibly, to the thing that is the most precious. We should. And so he tells Amos here to preach, normal life cannot continue. You must wake up. And you notice when Jesus came, he sent John the Baptist ahead of him, didn't he? John the Baptist. He said he was like a preacher in the wilderness. Make way, he said, the streets, the straight ways of the Lord. Wake up. Be baptized in righteousness and goodness. Seek the Lord with all your heart and all of your soul. You shall find him as he is. 
And so um, Amos comes to us in the same light. Um, in the Gospels, <clears throat> the Gospel of Mark, if you look at John the Baptist, uh, it says, chapter 1, verse, verse 2, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight, straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance. And so again and again in this first chapter of Mark, it mentions the preaching, the proclamation, just like in Amos, of the existence of God. If God exists in our mind's eye, if God possesses our hearts, then our lives will be different. So many of us today focus on the more abstract elements of theology, which I applaud in one sense. But to the degree that we miss the kinds of things that Amos was focused upon, we miss the significance of these more arcane matters of theology. The most significant matter of theology is the existence of God, the bold existence of God. He is the living God in the sense that he's real. He's not like the gods that people create that cannot hear and, and smell and see and act with power. No, he's the living God. So we ought to fear him. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We ought to fear him and our lives ought to be affected congruently with that love and with that fear. And that, in this case, uh, that was the burden of Amos as he came preaching. And uh, uh, we miss the whole thing if we don't see the fundamentally significant dimension of God's real existence and the fact that if we really took that seriously, our lives would be even more different than they are. So let us take this to heart, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> we, we ourselves, as Christians, we do not think enough of the punishment and the judgment of God regarding unrighteousness that focuses upon the deviations, but it focuses upon the deviations because the deviations reveal a lack of love for God. And so all of us, people of the Church of Christ, people that would compare with the children of Israel in the day of Amos, all of us need to try harder. We need to seek the Lord's face. We need to call out for him to help us with our own feeble hearts, to seek his face and to walk in the ways of the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would help us. We see there are so many troubles on every side, but you call us not to be so focused on them as to focus on our own poor hearts. Oh, God, bless us with renewed obedience. Bless us with renewed faithfulness. Bless us with a renewed thirst and hunger for thee. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.